The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets and politics, Hollywood, the economy, investing, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Success is incredibly rare. We, we all suffer from survivorship bias. That, that's why people invest in plays and restaurants. You, you think, oh, Hamilton is great. Let's put money into a play. You don't see the other million plays that failed before Hamilton. And so you forget that success is an exceedingly fragile, delicate, rare thing. Esteemed polymath and Wall Street watcher Barry Ritholtz on bank failures and human nature, remote work surprising relationship to productivity, Twitter under Elon Musk, and markets seeking new leadership, and lots more. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. I invite you to join us in person in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the evening of Thursday, May 18th, for a very special Full Disclosure Live with Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation, from the historic Paramount Theater to celebrate the 50th anniversary of WVTF Radio IQ News. Ticket info at WVTF.org and on Twitter at handle Robin Farzad. Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation on Full Disclosure Live. Join us. Joining me from New York is Barry Ritholtz. Again, thank you for coming back. Co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He has known the world and Wall Street over for being one of the top spectators of markets and the economy and pop culture, I would say, writ large in the Twitter and post-Twitter era. How are you, sir? The post-Twitter era. I guess that's what this is, isn't it? I'm pretty good. Well, I think I met you over Twitter, and we once had lunch near Grand Central uh, during the throes of the financial crisis, which is seemingly ancient history now. I think it was in the spring of 2009 that we were meeting and talking about bank failures, which we'll get into again. But uh, yeah, you've you've covered yourself in glory through <laughs> bull and uh, bear markets alike. How are you? I'm pretty well. How about yourself? All right. Barry, do you remember where you were New Year's Eve? Yes. I was in a hospital parking lot waiting for my wife to come out of the ER because they wouldn't let us in and they had a drip that was two years ago. No, this. No, no, no. This New Year's Eve, 12 31 22. So we have a fun New Year's Eve tradition that we created when we, we, my wife and I first got engaged and moved in together. We just had a big pile of, of, we were young and broke, and we had a big pile of holiday gifts, and the pile just kept getting bigger and bigger of these cheap trinkets. And, and we didn't want to, you know, the holiday season to end too early. And so. We waited. We waited for Hanukkah to come and go, and then we waited for Christmas to come and go. And we said, I know, why don't we swap gifts on New Year's Eve? And so the tradition is we go out someplace early to dinner, because let's be blunt, New Year's Eve is amateur night. 
And then we come home and we open gifts, uh, have some something to drink, and watch the ball drop. And that's our New Year's Eve. So this year, I was in my dining room unwrapping holiday gifts. Now, had I told you that Barry, like the ghost of 2023 future, comes in and says, you've been asked for all manner of predictions the year ahead, the Fed, it, it focuses on certain things. Had I told you that three of the five biggest bank failures in U.S. history would have happened in an otherwise normal U.S. economy by mid-2023. I'm talking here, of course, First Republic Bank, which had $212 billion in assets, Silicon Valley Bank, $209 billion in assets, and Signature Bank, $110 billion in assets, all uh, you know, by the present right now. And we're on the brink of potentially other bank failures. What would you have ascribed that to? Which cause? Well, since I have perfect 2020 hindsight, I would tell you, hey, the Fed is raising rates so quickly, they're going to break something. And uh, it's hard to unlearn what we already know. The The reality is I don't think any of us would have guessed what it was unless our answer to every question is the Fed, uh, which is some analyst's <laughs> approach to the world. Does this qualify as a Minsky moment? And if you please define that again for our listeners. Sure. Uh, Hyman Minsky came up with this wonderful theory that says stability begets instability. And if you think about it, there's a lot of Solomonic wisdom in that, in, in such this too shall pass. When things are going good, hey, brace yourself because something bad's going to happen. And when things are terrible, it's like, well, get ready. It's always darkest before the dawn. The Minsky moment is... When everything is okay and we have no crises and things are going along okay, that encourages humans to take more risk, to, to be less, uh, to have less risk aversion, and eventually that leads to speculative excesses and then destabilization. And the cycle turns again and again, and human nature seems to be forever and eternally stuck in that cycle. So here we go in 2022, we go from zero interest rate policy coming out of the pandemic. Again, you know, essentially free money. And that encouraged all sorts of risk taking, a super hot housing market. Rates go from effectively zero within a year to currently 5.25 percent. 5 Was that not somewhat predictable considering the severity of the inflation we saw last year? And the Fed, again, has a mandate for full employment and versus price stability, and it's it's willing to sacrifice one for the other. It's less predictable than you would have thought if you would have watched the data as it came in. So let's start with inflation. Uh, the Fed has had a 2% inflation target for a decade, and inflation has stayed far below it, much to the chagrin of the past three Fed chair people. But then in March 2021, CPI went through 2% and kept going up. And, you know, if you're paying attention, we, we've already begun to recover from the lockdown and the pandemic. We were reopening. There was lots of vaccines around. That would have been the time for the Fed to get off of their emergency footing, to get off of zero. But for reasons that have yet to be explained by Jerome Powell or anybody else, they waited, not a meeting, not a month, not a quarter or two. They waited a full 12 months. And then in March 2022, sort of in a panic, they began raising rates very aggressively, very abruptly. And, you know, they told us, hey, we're going to raise rates and, and take us up to around 
The problem, and this is the sticky part, no one believed them because by that point in time, we had already seen goods inflation begun to peak and roll over. And, and by June of 2022, the top was in for inflation and lumber and metals and energy and all these things started rolling over. And, and a lot of things by the end of the year had come back down to pre-pandemic levels. So if you're looking at the data, you're a little bit confused as to why the Fed maintained this aggressive pace. So there's always a lot of nuance. Everybody hates the shades of gray. They just want to be able to pound their fist and say, it's black. No, it's white. It's up. No, it's down. The world doesn't operate that way. It's a lot more complex. So clearly inflation was an issue. Clearly the Fed had to get off of zero and start raising rates. They obviously should have started way earlier, whether it's a year or nine months, it doesn't matter. Have they in, in recent memory, I'm talking Greenspan, Bernanke, no, Yellen, no, currently like Jerome Powell, have they ever landed it correctly? Have they ever not overshot either by too much cutting or too much hiking, in my memory at least? Um, You know, sometimes they they get it more or less right. It's a very imperfect tool. Uh, monetary policy is very imperfect. The language, the cliched language everybody uses is monetary policy acts with a uh, a long lag, which is a, a long and an, an uncertain lag, which is, you know, sort of uh, bankeries for we have no idea what what the long <laughs> and variable lag of monetary policy is. The truth is we simply don't know. And so we come up with that verbiage, which is really nonsense. To answer your question, sometimes they get it a little right. Sometimes they get it a little wrong. The problem when they get it right in a complex economy such as ours is there are always unanticipated consequences. There are always side effects that come along, and teasing out causality is really challenging. It's not overstating it to say Greenspan taking rates down to 1% and keeping them there for three years after 9-11. Personally, I don't understand, oh, a terrorist attack, we, we will thwart them with lower interest rates. You know, there's no that makes no sense. It's clear that that helped fill the room with dangerous vapor, which eventually blew up in the financial crisis. Getting it exactly right is really difficult. They really need to do a little less and try and get it. Worry less about getting it exactly right and worry more about getting it very wrong. And just looking at this current uh, Fed, they were very wrong in leaving rates as low as they did for as long as they did. And it looks like they're wrong in how rapidly they raised rates. And we'll find out how wrong they are at keeping rates at 5% for however long they intend on, on doing now, that. Barry, I'm, I'm thinking back to Econ 101, freshman year of college, with the charismatic professor Beth Bogan. Gosh, that's a flashback. How exactly does demand destruction with all these rate hikes and a tightening cycle? Walk me through that. Like, I'm, I'll think about my favorite dish at my favorite restaurant. I have an episodic memory, if not a photographic memory. It's easy, easily up the cost, the price, 30, 35% in three, four years. I'm thinking about the jug of Starbucks cold brew at the grocery store that used to always cost $4.99 that's now $6.99. All of this in the span of a pandemic and the various price points along the way. And clearly food and energy is, is, is really volatile. But 
How does it work? So people start feeling less hale and healthy. They start conserving money more and that prices have to come down to equilibrate with that lower demand. How do you see inflation being destroyed and that coursing through the actual everyday economy? Walk me so, through that. So there's three questions uh, that we need to unpack. One is, how does demand destruction come along? The second is, uh, implied is, why have we had this giant spike as inflation? Is it going to be sticky? And then third, what's the actual mechanism? So Unpack away. Uh, so the, the easiest example is real estate. I mean, anybody could look around and say, hey, we are not you know, home prices went up and people were still buying. The caveat there is following the financial crisis, builders uh, and developers switched to multifamily homes, apartment buildings, instead of single family homes. Uh, and so we underbuilt homes for the better part of a decade. Even as an, as population grew pretty substantially, we're now about 330 million people versus 290-something, let's call it 300, right before the financial crisis. So first, sure. there's a shortage of houses. Second, mortgage rates were really low. You could 275, three and a quarter, really, really low. Now you're paying six and a half, seven percent That has an enormous impact on your monthly cost. Here's the dirty little secret about real estate. The typical home buyer doesn't care what the house costs. They care what their monthly nut is. Can I afford this house or not? Well, a $300,000 house at 7% is about the same as a $480,000 house. I'm doing this off the top of my head so I may get the numbers wrong. At about 2.9%. It's kind of shocking. If your monthly payment is the same, you don't really care what you pay as long as you can afford it. And so all other things being equal, rates going way up makes residential real estate much more expensive. Home sales start to slow. And along with home sales are all the other economic goods that accompany home ownership in the United States. Durable goods, furniture, appliances, decorating, all that's fun stuff. Automobile sales, they're all tied to people buying homes and living in them. And so that's the first level of demand destruction, you see, and that's really obvious and easiest. The second level is in credit availability. Rates go up. Uh, it's a little harder to get credit because now there's a little more risk involved, although for most of the banks, they still get to that spread between the what they're paying out in, in deposits. That's, that's their uh, source of capital is people opening up a checking or a savings account. Right. They're paying very little, but now they could charge more. So the profits go up, but you got to be careful as a lender because there's more at risk. And so sometimes, not always, but sometimes credit availability tightens. And when you have less credit, you have less people purchasing cars, typically born on credit, or major appliances or home. Oh, wait, hold on. And to say to say nothing of all the regional banks getting killed in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank. And that's and made Republic, it even worse. Exactly. Which is like a secondary and tertiary type. That's if, exactly right. You, you took the words out of my mouth. If you're a PacWest or a Comerica or a Zions Bank, these are major regional players, Western Alliance. They're now in kind of survival existential mode, so they're not thinking about extending loans necessarily. They're thinking about getting some help from the FDIC or other banks. That, that's exactly right. And when we see these surveys, the Federal Reserve does these surveys of lending officers at banks, you know, how, how have you adjusted your credit lending criteria? How, how many loans are you making? We find out that 
since Silicon Valley Bank blew up, it's the equivalent of, depending on whose econometric model you want to use, anywhere between 50 and 100 basis point increase in rates. It's the equivalent. That credit tightness is the equivalent of either we could tighten credit this way or we could raise rates another 7,500 basis points. It would have the same effect. And so that's the second way credit availability really hits, hits the economy. So on a small business level, how does that course down to the shopkeeper or restaurant owner and pricing? Again, I, I feel like we don't we don't sully our hands on this a lot, but we hear prices are sticky upwards. And on the other end, we don't want to have deflation in the economy. But you surely have also noticed some opportunistic pricing power. Companies, uh, both through shrinkflation, where they kind of in a cynical way reduce this you know the size of their products if you think about tropicana orange juice or certain detergents or a narrower roll of toilet paper so you're paying as much at the very least or more for less product or outright just hiking up the prices during this haze of the pandemic inflation do prices come down or do you see businesses fail both how does it work so so it's funny in in June of 2022 I wrote a piece Who's to blame for inflation? And I laid it out. And number, I don't know, I want to call it 13 out of 15 was corporate profit seeking. Some people called it greedflation. And I had it as a very- Greedflation. 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 Right. Yeah. I had it as a very low thing because I just wasn't seeing evidence that that was taking place. Well, over the ensuing years, year, over the ensuing, let's call it 14 months, more and more evidence of that began to to come out that corporations were opportunistically raising prices. There was a research report in July of 2022 that looked at price increases at 2021 based on input costs. And it turns out companies were raising prices because they could. And very recently, uh, I want to say earlier this week, there was a Wall Street Journal article about why is inflation so sticky? It could be corporate profits. And they talk about you know, when everything is going up in price, you behave differently than when just a handful of things go up. If something, if bananas suddenly go up in price and all the other fruit options are the same, well, maybe you skip the bananas and you buy strawberries. But if everything is going up, you're kind of like, I got no choice. I got I to gotta buy this or dramatically cut back my consumption. Um, and so companies, you know, slipped a few by with when people were otherwise looking at things. Now, one other factor about inflation to remember is the role of of consumers. And and very often, people forget. You know, I want to put this in some context. You know, you ever get a call from somebody that's late? Oh, sorry, I'm I'm running late. I'm stuck in traffic. Hey, hey, you're on the highway at, at rush hour. You're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. And consumers behave in a specific way. Gee, you know, consumers really are suffering from inflation, having to pay up for all these high prices. You got that backwards. If consumers are not price sensitive and they continue to pay more and more for the same good, well, they're signaling to the manufacturers or the retailers of those goods, hey, there's no price sensitivity here. Raise prices away. Consumers aren't suffering from inflation. They're driving inflation. And so one of the factors that allows inflation to come back down is when the consumer says, I'm not going to pay up for these goods and services. I'm going to either wait or find a substitute. 
And just look at what's going on in the price of oil. Broke 70 to the downside. It's about 67 a barrel in the midst of a hot shooting war with, you know, one of the largest distributors of, of oil in the world being boycotted by everybody else with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So oil prices falling is kind of telling you consumers have been shifting some of their uh, spending choices either to non-Russian energy sources, as we've seen in Europe, or just the giant spike in EV sales in the United States and around the world saying, hey, for transportation, I'm going to try a different energy source. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Barry Ritholtz. I, I will dare call you a friend of the show. He's founder, co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management, prolifically quoted in the canyons of Wall Street. <laughs> Uh, you've been doing this now for a long time. I read somewhere that you're also you're also a JD. You're you're a you're a lapsed attorney. You're recovering. A, you're an we author, use the term recovering, recovering attorney. attorney. Yes. I see your byline. I hear your voice. I don't know if you still do Bloomberg TV with Tom. Yes. Keen, but that seems to be important. And, and the podcast Masters in Business every week on Bloomberg. That's Radio. right. And check out my Tom Keen impersonation. I've never done it, but I'm Tom Keen, and you're not. <laughs> All right. That's not, that doesn't work so well. But Barry, uh, you know. What's interesting to me is you posted something about want more jobs, raise the minimum wage. This flies counter to what everybody's been telling us that pernicious price wage spiral inflation is killing the economy and people got too much and 15 and 20 is only going to lead to a worse spiral. But you have, you've marshaled stats that kind of put that on its head. Yeah, I've been talking about this for forever. This, this goes back to a- academic uh, research from Alan Kruger in the, in the, late 80s, early 90s, I think. And and effectively, it turns out that increasing wages on the bottom decile of earners. Uh, by the way, I have to correct you. Not everybody says that. Most of the academic literature comes down the other way, that modest increases in minimum wage over time does not have a negative impact. And if you just stop and think about it, Who's paying minimum wage? Well, it's the low-end retailers, it's the franchisees, it's Walmart, it's Dollar Store, it's McDonald's, it's places like that. And to who who can get away with paying minimum wage anymore outside of maybe Gary, Indiana? I don't know. Everything has been inflated. How many job fairs can McDonald's have in this great reset, this great resignation or whatever it's called. My impression is that $15, and maybe I'm thinking as a coastal elite, is increasingly the clearing wage. Yeah, well, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is Amazon figured out, hey, we're going to add a million people to our payroll. And if Walmart is going to be so damn stupid as to pay $8 an hour, we're going to scoop up all the qualified, competent people and take advantage of our more efficient business model and leave them behind. And in fact, you know, Walmart went through a big series of changes because they were paying bonuses to store managers based on how low they kept their costs. And so, you know, eventually piss off the consumer enough and, and they'll leave. So dirty stores, empty shelves, just, uh, you know, uh, overly keeping the labor side down is problematic. When we look at other things like McDonald's or any of the other franchises that are out there that do fast food, you know, a higher minimum wage, there's only so much revenue coming into any one store. And typically what happens with a higher minimum wage is, it's going to eat into profits. And when you look at the low dollar worker, the minimum wage worker, they get a raise. That money isn't going into their 401k. They're spending it. They're spending it on rent and food and clothes and healthcare and other stuff, which is very good for the local economy. On the other hand, 
the owners of either a Walmart or a McDonald's, when they see higher profits, well, it tends to leave the local region. It tends to either get reinvested in a 401k, an investment plan, or a profit distribution, but it is much less likely to be spent locally where that store is. And so when you have more people earning more money, spending more of that money in the local region, hey, that economic activity creates jobs. So this isn't rocket science. This is simply, hey, if you want more jobs, you have to allow both the marketplace to work, but also, you know, a lot of people say, why don't you just let the free market decide? Well, the free market gave us child labor and slavery. You need to have some guide rails. And and sometimes, you know, the minimum wage is that guide rail. Barry Ritholtz, hold that thought. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. You can catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. And I'd love to invite you yet again to our upcoming big live show in Charlottesville, Virginia, Thursday, May 18th at the historic Paramount Theater in Charlottesville. I host Margaret Brennan of CBS's Face the Nation for a conversation to celebrate the 50th anniversary of our home NPR station, Radio IQ. Tickets available on RadioIQ.org on all of my social media handles. Thursday, May 18th, Face the Nation, hosted by Full Disclosure in Charlottesville, Virginia. 7.30 p.m. Please do join us. My guest is Barry Ritholtz, the Wall Street follower, prolific author, podcaster, television personality. His day job is chief investment officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, Barry, talk to me about work from home. I remember seeing you. I don't know why it was like crossing Grand Central once. You had the <laughs> scarf around you, and people clearly recognize you from TV, and they're, they're kind of rushing you and asking you about things in 2011 and 2012. New York had a buzz to it, obviously, before the pandemic, and now it's just eerie, even on a Monday morning. I don't know if you if you exit out of uh, that really deep three mile down new, you know, Grand Central Terminal LIRR exit, or if you come in at the the Penn Station atrocity. <laughs> and this is just a segue into the whole work from home paradigm. Like I, I feel for all of those lunch clip joints that would get away with charging you twenty two dollars for a chopped salad, but. It's a microcosm of what's happening across the country. I can show you Washington, D.C., L.A., Boston, and you're seeing that there's an inverse relationship between productivity and having to come back to the office. Yeah, there's a couple of amazing data points around work from home and, and what's going on. First off, the United States is doing much more poorly in terms of return to office, you know, RTO versus WFH, than Europe. And when you look into why, well, Europe tends to have smaller homes, so there's less space to set up a home office, but they also have much better childcare, and they have a much, much, much more robust uh, mass transit system. So it's not as time-consuming to get to and from work. People tend to live closer to the city center, so the commute is reasonable. In the U.S., the cost of housing has gone up so much that people live further and further away. And it's just a giant, unpleasant time suck. So there's that. Second, when you look at some of the stats around who in the United States is doing better and who's doing worse, big cities are doing worse on average than the rest of the country. Again, it probably goes back to that mass transit. The average is somewhere around 60%. 
Cities are doing worse. New York is doing something like 47%, just as an example, which means forget the offices that are just gone, that are empty, but the typical office, you know, half their staff isn't in on any given day. Uh, A handful of cities have kind of done better of figuring out a a, a better way to do it. I'm I'm looking for the chart that I I pulled from Torsten Slock on this exact thing, but you could see all sorts of different numbers. I think Austin is doing pretty well and San Francisco is doing pretty poorly. Let's see if I can actually find, here it is. Yeah, 50% seems to be the new metropolitan uh, return to office. And, and some of the best numbers, um, Austin is in the mid 60%. San Jose is in the high 30%. Um, San Francisco, DC, and Philadelphia are low 40%. And New York, the biggest metro center, is 46%. So, uh, you know, when we talk about productivity, it's all the time that you spend getting ready for work, showering, shaving, getting dressed. Going to the office, that commute is a killer. All the chit-chat, all the what we used to call water cooler talk, all that stuff, the endless meetings. This, You know, when you're on uh, Zoom calls, you could do other things. You could just blank out your video and you could find other stuff to do and be productive. You, you, when you're in the office, it's incredibly useful for collaborative work and for building a corporate culture. I don't want to say the office is total dead time. But for a lot of companies, it's a productivity killer. Not a big surprise that as return to office has upticked over the past 12 months, year-over-year productivity has come down. And and even as hours worked have gone up also, productivity fell 2.7% quarter-to-quarter, and year-over-year it fell just under 1%. Output rose, hours worked rose, but, you know, your your hours working are going up faster than output is, which means productivity has fallen. Barry, do you think the Fed and other bank regulators are potentially looking at this as a, as a brewing systemic crisis, i.e. banks made real estate loans based on a certain percentage of occupancy over the life of the lease and the lease rolled over and there are indications now that that's just not coming back. Maybe if unemployment were to shoot up again, you'd have a cudgel as an employer to say, show back up to the office or else. But even then, you get this overwhelming impression that there's way too much square footage out there. And there's a painful reconciliation that's in the offing. And to what extent does that become crisis-like, like the now forgotten savings and loan crisis? So let's go a little more recent. Uh, than the SNL crisis of the 80s and, and early 90s. So I recall writing research about retail in the United States heading into the financial crisis, not even 08, 09, but like 06 and 07. And the U.S. was over-retailed versus other economically advanced countries like Japan and regions like Europe I think the U.S. had something on a per capita basis, something like 22 square feet or 25 square feet per capita of retail space, and Europe was something like 12 square feet per capita, and Japan was 8 or 9 square feet. So we were wildly over-mauled, over-retailed, and it took a solid 12 years or so for that to ease off, and then the pandemic really kicked its butt, and, and we saw retail shops closing left and right. And and you'll notice when a retail store closes that sells goods, 
that could be sold more cheaply on on the internet, it tends to be replaced with a services shop. I can't help but notice every time some shoe store or some local Gigo store closes, it's replaced with a educational tutor sort of shop or a karate shop or or something. Used to be a Jamba. Used to be a Jamba Juice back in the day or a bank. But both of those are distressed <laughs> brands right now. And banks, you know, how many ATMs can anybody put up in a given region at a certain point? You know, you right. have to wor- worry about it. So, what, I mean, are the banks being scrutinized for this? How does it work? Because it's like, I would have said, by the way, if we go back to that New Year's Eve prediction that suddenly there is a big kink in the system akin to subprime in 2007 and 2008. I don't know if securitization was the Minsky moment or something else, but that commercial real estate distress would have been the epicenter of financial distress. But we're not really getting indications of that. It's kind of like, yeah, it is what it is. You know, 48% vacancy, 49% return to the office, 50% return to the office. But that hasn't hit the financials of real estate investment trusts or other landlords or the commercial property universe as much as I would have imagined. Um, it's a long, slow process. And that's why I wanted to to bring up the the retail as an example basically when you when you go out and look at how long it took for retail to sort of get i hate this phrase but i'm going to use it right sized it wouldn't be a big surprise to see the same sort of thing take place on the commercial real estate area and and just look at what happened in downtown manhattan post 911 the whole world trade region primarily converted from office towers to residential towers. I'm not suggesting they knocked these towers down and put up new ones. What they ended up doing was literally a conversion process, which is time consuming. You have to apply for it. You have to get permits. You have to raise the money. You have to put a plan together. And then you have to let everybody leave those offices, some of which are long-term leases, and then go through the process of converting it. One has to think in a supply-constrained residential nation like the United States, it would make sense for a lot of these offices to be converted. Now, there's a wonderful New York Times infographic about the 60s and 70s era buildings, office buildings that went up that really are so deep with no access to a window. They're just these giant caverns that it's hard to create an apartment with no windows, no light. And so what they end up doing is taking that whole inner core of elevator banks and creating a inner courtyard. So now you have windows on the street side as well as the interior side, and you can create uh, a decent number of, of apartments that way. Barry, here's a wild card question for you. I, I kind of yawn when I hear about this latest debt ceiling impasse, but does it become a, a cried wolf type thing, or is there a certain moral hazard to partisans on Capitol Hill kind of bringing this up every now and then. I mean, it might have terrified us during the United States credit rating downgrade and the volatility of 2011, but the threat of which has happened so many times since that I I kind of sense more of a collective yawn going into this perceived June period of running out of money to spend. Yeah, there's two factors that, that take place. One is we've seen this movie before multiple times. We know how it ends, but I continue to be astonished that politicians think we have zero memory. Hey, didn't we just come through an era where 
there were big unfunded tax cuts and big spending increases, and there was no issue with the debt ceiling. Hey, if you want to argue that the pandemic was a one-off special thing and the first of three CARES Act, the $2 trillion CARES Act that was passed in 2020 was, you know, emergency, okay, but you got to explain the unfunded tax cuts. You got to explain all the other spending, just seven, eight trillion dollars in spending increases. Nobody cared about the debt ceiling. So I've learned that all of the deficit posturing is nonsense. I've heard from my entire adult life, the U.S. economy is going to die. We're going to lose our, our supremacy. The, the dollar will become worthless. We must get the deficit under control. Literally, I've heard that since I graduated college. And it turns out, to use a technical economic term, to be sheer bull****. It's just absolute nonsense. At a certain point, the deficit will eventually matter. But that point is nowhere near us. And as we've seen in Japan, whose debt to GDP ratio is double the United States, it's far, far off in the future. It's not anything we have to worry about for now. Is it a great thing? Do we want the country spending money recklessly and, and with, you know, abandon? No, but you know what? The government has to provide some basic services. You got to pave the roads. You got to have a military. You can't let your elderly go hungry. And, and there's a cost to that. And we need to be adults and address this in an adult way and not just embrace some half-hearted ideology that says, well, deficits are bad, but only when the other guy is in the White House. That, that's a, a, just a childish approach. Barry, what's your relationship with Twitter been like since the autocratic regime effectively took over? <laughs> it's no longer a publicly traded company. I see that you didn't pay the requisite $8 a month for your blue check mark, so I assume I'm talking to a Barry Ritholtz followed by hundreds of thousands of people. Right. It, it's kind of sad because Twitter is this delightful place where if you use it correctly, it's an enormous source of information and Joy. Uh, so uh, my my solution to Twitter years ago was to create lists of different things I'm interested in. So I and I I, I make most of these lists public. Um, I have a behavioral finance list of all the people in that space I follow. I have a markets and charts list of all the the folks who crank out all those wonderful charts that very often there there's kind of an astrophysics berry that kind of yeah. So uh, when you talk about harpooning a comet, yeah, no, there's some the some meaning really, of life. <laughs> I, I have I have I have a science and a, a technology and venture capital list that I don't know how this happened. Somehow ended up with like sixty thousand followers. I have a automobile list that I don't know, has like 10 followers because it's just me geeking out on cars. Uh, and I have another one on timepieces and watches because I'm kind of, I'm fascinated by the concept of time and human mortality. And a watch is a ever-present reminder that you only have so many days on this planet, better make the most of it. And so that's this fascinating so, so you can use you can use Twitter in a way where 
you don't need to see all the crazy partisanship. You don't need to see the the wacky people. But why? Here's my qu- here's my question. And clearly, money doesn't mean something to the person who's on and off the richest person in the world. Even if he had to put up fifteen billion of his own equity for wildly overpaying, what was it, forty forty three billion dollars yeah. for something that something that could have been worth half as much had he just waited for the tech sell off. But that's all water under the bridge now. Why not? And here's another mixed metaphor, honey instead of vinegar. Why not come out and trick it out with great features, editing, more animated GIFs, more granularity for powered users like yourself, instead of saying, all right, I just levered up the company. It's nearing bankruptcy. I got to shake you down for $8 or else and flood the plane with barely verified people. I mean, I know that a billionaire is going to billionaire, but uh, it flies in the face of, you know, if if a power user like a Barry Ritholtz is creating content for Twitter and oxygenating the ecosystem, another metaphor, there you go. Why would you punish people like that? So I, I was thinking about this a couple of months ago when I wrote something up called Get Yourself Some No Men, to uh, use a, a inversion of the old phrase, yes men, the sort of parasitic hangers-on that attach themselves to the wealthy. At least the the Ramona fish cleans the shark. These people are just a total drag. And, And I think, you know, when you achieve a certain level of success and arguably becoming one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest person in the world, is a level of success, people don't like to say no to you. They really don't. And you know, one of my colleagues, Michael Batnick, says my, my superpower is I talk to billionaires and Uber drivers the same, and I never thought about it, but I think that's more a reflection of my own cluelessness, but it's <laughs> it's worked out for me. But I think you get a guy like Elon Musk, and no one says to Elon, hey, $44 billion for a really crappy product? Uh, you could use it for free. Why do you need to own this? Don't do that. That's a terrible idea. And then once he made the offer and waived due diligence, by the way, no, don't offer $44 billion and waive due diligence. You have to at least leave yourself an out. Once he did that, someone should have said to him, pay the billion dollars and walk away. It's the best billion dollars you'll spend. And not coincidentally, not only is it a huge distraction for him um, and a third company he's running, but... He's in the process of alienating the people who tend to be Tesla buyers. Not all of them, not everybody who's a potential Tesla buyer is on Twitter, and not all of them are alienated. But anecdotally, a lot of people who either own a Tesla or were thinking about it are much less inclined to go buy a Tesla. So it's not just that he purchased Twitter. It's that he thought it was okay to let Nazis and insurrectionists and all sorts of other stuff back onto Twitter. You know, you, you we don't get the advertising data the way we used to when it was a public company, but you can understand why consumer brands don't want their ads next to white supremacist tweets or Nazis. It turns out to be a bad marketing strategy. And so, you know, it's frustrating watching uh, what was once a lovely, if you used it right, way to interact with people like yourself that I wouldn't have met otherwise. You know, Facebook is just a flaming dumpster fire. So hold that aside. There was a chance that someone like Jack Dorsey could have slowly made the changes to make 
Twitter better. I forgot the name of what Dorsey launched, Blue Sky, I think it's called. Hopefully that will um, come. But one of the things we forget, and I apologize for um, uh, for filibustering, one of the things people forget is that success is incredibly rare. We we all suffer from survivorship bias. That that's why people invest in plays and restaurants. You you think the <laughs> oh Hamilton is great. Let's put money into a play. You don't see the other million plays that failed uh, before Hamilton. And so you forget that success is an exceedingly fragile, delicate, rare thing. And Twitter. It may not have been the most profitable social network, but it was one of the most influential. And that success, that fragility is being broken. And and as I tweeted the other day, ironically, I'm going to miss this site when it's gone. But here's the interesting thing. According to all the bylaws and rules and uh, norms of capitalism and being a public company and SEC filings and whatnot, the management of what was Twitter last year publicly traded only had to consider the highest offer at a certain price. They didn't have to come in and holistically say, no, this guy has an erratic history on our platform. He might have all the money in the world, but he's adjacent to maybe nefarious characters who would bring back onto the platform. Their only job, uh, Twitter management of the public company, was to look for the highest offer to sell when it was put into play. They didn't have to consider danger to the brand, alienating the users, uh, maybe 60 or 70% of the workforce getting let go. Yeah, if if you're a board of directors and you have a shareholder and someone comes along and offers you much more than it's worth, you have to hit that bid. You absolutely have to take that. It would have been irresponsible for them to look at each other and say, this company, I don't know, maybe the stock's trading at 30, 35 billion, but we know it's it's ha- we're having a real hard time monetizing this. Maybe it's worth 20 billion, maybe it's worth less. This fool wants to give us $44 billion? Sold. Even if it destroys the company, even if it marginalizes the other stakeholders, your users, your employees. That is not my fiduciary obligation as a member of the board of directors of Twitter. My obligation is to get the most amount of money for the shareholders who own this. Once it's sold to somebody else and in real estate property there and and other things, there's concerns about the dead hands affecting subsequent things. You you sell it, you can't, you know, you sell your house, you can't tell the new person who, who buys it, oh, and by the way, you can't paint the interior uh, any color you like. That Now, you could put some limited restrictions on what they can and can't do as part of the contract, and the buyer has to agree with it, but... But if you, suppose you love the neighborhood and somebody from the Cali cartel wants to buy it, and they've had a history of burying bodies and doing other things and using it as a stash house even though it blows away every other offer? Well, you don't have a fiduciary obligation to shareholders. That's a decision you're making on your own. And uh, it's a very different set of circumstances. But at the time the sale was taking place, you were unaware as a seller that what was going to happen to Twitter, that's just a forecast. Nobody knows what Elon Musk was going to do to Twitter. Some people warned Hey, he's going to do this and this, and it's going to be bad. But the pushback to that was, he just spent $44 billion on this. Why would he do something so stupid to devalue it and send it circling the drain? Uh, Right now, I think it's even money if Twitter's here in five years. You know, maybe he'll be smart enough to step down and let somebody run it who isn't going to put 
white supremacists, Nazis, insurrectionists, other bad people into the mix and basically ruin it. I don't know how much time you spend on Facebook, but long ago, Facebook just became such a debacle. It's like, you know, when you are you are hosting a cocktail party, if any of the guests decide they're going to pee in your potted plants, you're free to throw them out. Hey, that jerk was ruining my cocktail party. And if you host a public company that's privately held, meaning it's not a government entity, it's it's just the private sector, you could determine within the laws, you, you can say, I'm not going to let you in because you're white or black or Jewish or gay or whatever. You have to follow the laws. But beyond that, you could determine who is your client base. And you're free to say, I don't want people making the experience worse for our actual clients. And so I'm going to kick them out. And, and I guess Musk forgot that or more likely never really cared about that. The, his whole, you know, town square First Amendment thing has proven itself to be nonsense, especially when you see how he kowtows to the Chinese government because he has financial interests through Tesla in China. And it's really problematic. So I will miss Twitter when it's gone. I have yet to find anything that is as comprehensive. I don't know if anything will ever be able to get that many people all in the same place. It seems to be balkanized into into post and blue sky and a whole bunch of other things. It would be nice if everybody can just en masse up and leave and, and join a new... That's the problem with network effects. Yeah. It's kind of a snowball and you join the network because other people are on right. it. And you could hang up other shingles till you turn. You know, there there were moments in history where suddenly everybody was talking about Friendster. Everybody was talking about Facebook. Everybody was talking about Instagram. And you were missing out. There was FOMO if you weren't there. And you're seeing people abandoning or getting disillusioned by the ecosystem at at Twitter right now. And I think social media writ large. Here's the thing that we all tend to forget. New, new technology is great. It's wonderful to be able to have uh, abilities that you didn't have previously, but sometimes those abilities come with with certain costs. And one of the costs we've seen, uh, at least on Facebook, is the capability of either misinformation or just outright wrong information uh, to very much become influential and, and affect people. I think that there's a tendency for our confirmation biases to lead us to finding junk, true or not, that confirms our previous belief system. So I'm not seeing a whole lot of people whose views have been you know, radically changed, but people who've had fringe views have allowed those things to be confirmed, and it's made those folks more aggressive, bolder, in what they believe. Back in the old days, there was one crazy guy outside the library wearing aluminum foil on his head to keep the government from reading his thoughts. All those folks have managed to hook up on the internet. And, you know, uh, that's where a lot of the extremist movements have come from, whether it's political or anti-vaxxer or, you know, the the endless parade of stupid. It, it just seems to, uh, I, I don't know who originally said this, but it's true. The most abundant elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity. And that seems to be shockingly true.
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Barry Ritholtz. He's Chief Investment Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. And I got to tell you, in this era of rampant shrinkflation, which I alluded to earlier, everybody's getting inured to getting less for more. But uh, dear broadcast listeners out there, you know that this show runs 52 minutes on radio, but I'm going to give you an extra eight minutes on podcast. So much do I enjoy Mr. Ritholtz's range <laughs> of analysis. I want to take you to markets, uh, Barry. Sure. We're coming off of this great run for the United States, big cap growth tech back, you know, before it all fell apart. Amazon, Microsoft has been resurgent, clearly Apple. You have a multi-trillion dollar club, which used to be unthinkable. Maybe at the at the turn of the century, Cisco was close to breaking right. a trillion dollar, was close to attaining that. Now it's kind of commonplace. But very few people, and maybe it's our home bias and my, myopia, international equity investing has had a lost decade and a half. I believe developed markets such as Canada and much of Europe and emerging markets, including Brazil, India, uh, South Korea nominally, that's been dead money for 15 years. How long can this passivity stand, sir? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, I love the quarterly deck that JP Morgan puts out. And one of the slides was just showing exactly that whether it was U.S. or ex-U.S. that was outperforming at that particular moment. And we've just seen about 18 months of the world outside of the U.S. as the outperforming part of, of the investment world. And, you know, typically we see these periods last as, as long as a decade. L look at the 2000s. You had the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah, our lost, our lost decade was a magnificent decade for emerging markets. It wasn't even close. That's exactly right. And we ended up with a giant post-financial crisis boom in exactly that. The, whatchamacallit, the, the rest of the world underperformed the U.S. from the end of the financial crisis to, let's call it 2020. That seems to be reversing here. That seems to really be finding its way to the opposite. And it wouldn't surprise me if we saw this outperformance by the rest of the world continue for the foreseeable future. Now, that doesn't mean investing in the United States is dead. What it really means is that we should be lowering our forward return expectations for the United States. And let's Again, put some meat on the bones. Let's put some numbers here. You know, go back a century, average equity returns uh, for the U.S. has been about 8%. Go from the end of the financial crisis or even 2010 to 2021, and it was 14%. Even with the 19%, that's 14% a year. Even with the sell-off last year of 19%, you're still way, way over historical averages for U.S. returns. And so the thing that seems to make the most amount of sense is to say we should lower our expectations as to what we're likely to get in the U.S. going forward. And because of that, we should really be thinking about um, the rest of the diversification uh, that you typically have. And that includes emerging markets, which are still lagging, and developed ex-U.S., which seems to be doing really well. Now, why are there all there? And this this flicks to a recent essay that you wrote about the nature of the Standard and Poor's 500 index, which is you know you hear a lot about the Dow Jones Industrials, but it's really the S and P 500, which is benchmarked the world over for institutional investors. That's 
the big torch, if you will, for the United States. And there are many out there, many respected investors I talk to that say that if you're mom and pop, that's all you really need, warts and all, even if it's overweighted with tech or financials. But there are others out there who say that it's flawed. It's bound to have things such as the lost decade of the early aughts after it came off of a, a tremendous period of growth going into the tech boom. Is there a better way to smooth out returns over the long run? I mean, I, I don't want to get into Wonkistan with asset allocation, but it seems like after an asset class has been dead for so long, and yes, the United States was dead for much of 2000 to 2009, that you should be looking to double down in that dead area, not where everybody has kind of been and parked trillions of dollars over recent history. Right. And if, if you want to look at the area that's been dead for the longest period of time, that seems to be the XUS develop. And so that means you're betting not only on Europe, but you're also betting on parts of the rest of the world that have done well. Areas like Vietnam and Korea and, and parts of South America that have seen a big increase in, in their economic activity and their corporate profitability. And so, sure, why not look over there? I mean, part of diversification means part of your portfolio is always going to be underperforming because if one part is outperforming, well, it's not like Lake Wobegon where all of the children are above average. In the markets, <laughs> anything that's above average means that something else has to be below average. So if U.S. is above average, well, that's going to imply ex-U.S. is below average. Now that the U.S. is pricey and has had a great run and has outperformed for a decade minus last year, past 18 months, if you have a long-term perspective and you're okay with a little bit of volatility, you should have developed ex-U.S. in your portfolio along with emerging markets. Now, the caveat to that is when we look at the S&P 500, which consists of many of the biggest companies in the world, especially in the S&P 100, they get on average something like 50% of their revenues from overseas. And so by being an investor in the S&P 500, you're also investing in the rest of the world. The U.S. stocks seem to get a premium because we have a rule of law. We respect property rights, more or less, and, and we believe um, in, in the sanctity of contracts, which makes the United States a much more attractive place to invest than someplace like China, where the head of the country can come out and say, hey, we don't like what you're doing, and, and we're going to just take this from you. That doesn't happen in the United States. Now, you, you have people making noises. You had the former president tweeting at companies, um, which only really had an impact for the first six months until corporate America kind of figured out, oh, they're just tweets. There. He's not going to do anything about that. So Wall Street eventually came to learn to ignore President Trump's tweets because they were mostly toothless. Even going after Amazon tended to not have much tooth. And when Microsoft was awarded a cloud business over Amazon, they immediately filed suit because they claimed it wasn't based on the merits. It was partisan politics. And I don't know where that is in the process, but it's still rolling along out there. So rule of law, sanctity of property rights, sanctity of contracts— U.S. stocks tend to get a premium over the rest of the world because of that. 
Barry Ritholtz, you know, if if I was still up in Manhattan and, uh, you know, it was the before times, you and I would be having something by Grand Central, taking back a couple of pints and then talking about astrophysical Barry. We'd be talking about atavistic Barry. I think you posted something about hunters and uh, the bias toward right-handedness, maybe as a function of covering the hard on the left side. But I only have so much time with you, and I just want to throw out one more wild card for one of my favorite polymaths, this Apple savings account. This high-yield savings account that Apple, the most highly valued company in the United States at the very least, I saw this stat that it gained a billion dollars in new deposits to its high-yield savings account, Apple. We're talking Apple, the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple Watch, and that's just 0.2% of Apple's iPhone user base. Uh, In just four days, a billion (laughs) dollars taken in. During a banking crisis, no less. How big can this get? I'm thinking about network effects, but also the Trojan horse metaphor, the foot in the yeah. door metaphor. So many people have Apple products on their body, in their pockets, that the credit card is already linked to iTunes and the Apple store. And if money is going to be moving around and it's frictionless, Apple could be an enormous beneficiary of this trillions of dollars of cash that's suddenly up for grabs. No doubt about that. In fact, when we look at that ecosystem, Apple is, you know, really a unique entity. There are no other companies like that. Uh, Maybe Tesla has a similar sort of fanboy core audience, reminds me of Apple in the 90s and 2000s when nobody knew if if they were going to survive um, or how big they would eventually become. But, you know, I, I if you've ever used Apple Pay on your phone, if you've ever used your phone as an entry to the subway, it's like, uh, oh, my goodness, I, I have to fix my password and make it more robust because this is astonishing. I don't need anything else. I could just walk around with my phone. You don't need a wallet. You don't need ID. You don't need cash. You That's don't need right. a credit card. It's all on your phone. And... You know, they've been slowly working their way towards this. I think a lot of it is socio-cultural that people have to get younger people. They grew up with this. It's it's absolutely frictionless for them. But even, you know, uh, Gen Y and even people in their 40s, 50s and 60s, they need to get comfortable with, gee, everything is on the phone. I don't need anything else. It, it It's definitely a transition. The challenge for Android and Samsung and all the other competitors is how do you continue to grow market share when Apple has a lock and has very little attrition and they're capturing more and more non-Apple users? And, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It ain't the blue bubble on the messages. It's just the ease of use and how well everything works Apple seems to have figured that out better than everybody else in the tech space, and it's why they're one of the world's biggest companies. And again, I mean, not to flog this, 26 years ago, it was arguably 60 days away from bankruptcy. It's now worth $2.65 trillion. It's probably the most impressive comeback in at least U.S. corporate There's history. a weird nuance here in that the antitrust case against Microsoft paradoxically meant that Bill Gates needed Apple around because they were really the only other credible operating and I, system. I got I got a lot of grief from Apple fanboys when I called that the worst investment in history. Clearly, Microsoft made a lot of money on that 1997 investment. Not as much as they could have. Me- if they were smart, they would have held on to that. 
But, you know, it was really just once the antitrust case was over a few years later, they dumped it at a nice profit, but they probably left uh, a couple hundred billion dollars on the table. No, I'm thinking the ultimate lifeline to its nemesis. Like, the tables have turned, Charlie Murphy. But I digress. I can keep you on for two hours, Barry Ritholtz. Barry Ritholtz, host of the wildly popular Masters at Business podcast, co-founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Listeners, you can tell that I love having Barry on. I love knowing you, Twitter or not, sir. You are always welcome to come back on this show. My pleasure, Robin. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, again, broadcast listeners who want to hear the entirety of my interview with Barry can catch it on podcast. Go to linkfulldradio.com or wherever you get your pods. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's source for NPR news. Also, catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. Do not forget to join us Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater, a special Full Disclosure Live with CBS Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. Tickets are at the Paramount's website, on my Twitter, and of course at WVTF.org. Thursday, May 18th at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater. Full Disclosure presents CBS Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>